Okay, so let's begin. Uh, we spoke a little bit before this call began, Binoy. But the first question that I want to ask you is: uh, there was a controversy in the second college that you went to after Gokhale Institute about yeah. the demolishing of a particular canteen designed by an architect who either used to work there or teach there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Whatever your opinion about that canteen, the question that I wanted to ask you is: how important is it to you as a student of urbanization to preserve the character of a city as it evolves yeah. over time how important yeah. is the facade how important is the look and feel of a particular city yeah okay uh, so just for a bit of background uh, immediately after my masters in economics at gokhale i worked for a bit and then i did another masters in urban planning from sept university in ahmedabad uh, so that's one of the two premier institutes for urban planning in india and that's actually how i transitioned from a career in economics into a career in planning uh now a uh, sept university as uh, ashish mentioned the the real I, i wouldn't even call him so he's probably the founder and he's kind of like the the real means to why sept university came about so in, in many ways he is uh, the the formulator of uh, sept university that is uh, the architect by bb doshi is one of the most celebrated architects in india and he's actually the architect behind the sept university building um and one of those building one of those buildings in in the university was brought down recently and i think that was what led to con the controversy so i won't get into that controversy uh, too much but uh, what uh, ashish's larger question around uh, preserving uh, uh, the, the building consciously this in many ways uh, these buildings are like the stamps of our history right i mean it, it's the connections to our history a lot of things change over time but when we have the original buildings and the original uh, and see them for their original intent they give us an idea of how they functioned in that time and that in a sense is is as uh, tie into history uh, so, so from a planning perspective they become very important to uh, maintain uh, of course you have to be uh, practical there's, there's not everything that that is maintainable but the, the good thing about it is that most iconic buildings were built to last for many years and in that sense the only reason why they need to be destroyed is if you don't value them in any way it's not because the buildings have themselves become uh, uh, decrepit over time so in that sense i think it's very important that we maintain these buildings uh, and because of their tie in with our history so the reason i asked this question is because the sunday times of india just a couple of days ago uh, published an article about the importance or the need to preserve the cultural ethos through preserving buildings and yeah uh, either you or especially neha uh, might be surprised or saddened to hear this but errol disuza the director of iim ahmedabad proposed that the louis kahn design structure be brought down because according oh. to him it doesn't look i'm paraphrasing See, over here but look good enough for the 21st century i don't necessarily oh, agree with that i strongly disagree with that i think that is uh, an extremely beautiful building but the thing is with architecture like all forms of art it is subjective right but the historic behind that cannot be denied the fact that this is part of the uh, the, the historical character of ambad city now these buildings have been around for about 40 50 odd years i think from that perspective is good enough that they uh, as to why they should continue and continue to be maintained i mean we can all debate about certain buildings we may like them we may not like them uh, but uh, for whatever reason i think there should be a very strong reason for you to pull down some structure and i don't think uh, the fact that they don't fit into the 21st century 
the 21st century in, in many ways is still finding its feet or about its architectural style, right? I mean, we're still very young into this century. Uh, so to say that something doesn't meet 21st century standards, I don't know what that actually means. To be fair to yeah. Errol D'Souza, I'm quoting from memory, so I may have got a specific quote wrong. But like you, I was yeah. very saddened to hear that the building may not be around. And that's why I wanted that to be the first question. Yeah. Okay. Second, uh, based on what I know of uh, your approach towards urbanization, I think it would be a fair characterization to say that you prefer walkable cities over vehicular cities. Yeah. Cities but it's not should prioritize. Yeah, but actually, walking. it's it's not it's not just me. It's, it's almost everybody, yeah. right? Because uh, it, it's only when we put the tag of walkable versus motorable city, then that, that people start like uh, getting preconceived ideas as to what is desirable. But when you think about the cities that you, uh, I mean, look around the world. I mean, the cities that you that are considered the wonderful, beautiful cities that uh, people want to visit or people want to live in, you name them, like it's, whether it's Paris, London, Singapore, or even closer uh, home to India, where, where they're talking about uh, Delhi, Mumbai. The thing that really ties in these cities are the fact that these are cities you can walk through, right? These are cities that you can experience as a pedestrian. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, this is not coming from a perspective. And very often we see these things as competing. Uh, and in some ways they are. You you can't uh, uh, sacrifice motorability uh, with, with, without, I mean, you can't improve walkability without sacrificing some amount of motorability for your cities. But it's in, in other ways, it's, it's also about balance. It's about getting that right kind of balance. Uh, and there are extremely good examples of cities like uh, 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 London, New York, etc., which are quite motorable. They have their issues, no doubt. But at the same time, they are extremely walkable cities. And I think that's the kind of balance that we need to strive for. I mean, uh, we, it doesn't necessarily have to be a zero-sum game all, uh, all the time. And that's, I think, what is important to consider. Why are walkable cities better than motorable cities? I mean, you can speak about the relative importance of each, but what makes them stand apart, according to you? So I think, for one, is, uh, I mean, we can go into a lot of different reasons. But I think the, the, the foremost reason of why uh, uh you would say a walkable city is a better goal than a motorable city is because you you look at what you aspire in a city is you aspire close densities you aspire uh people living in a denser area and uh, the moment you uh, uh, try to achieve that kind of density and you also say that i want to put in the best of infrastructure to make it a motorable city these two things conflict with each other each other because then what you need is you need to have wide avenues you need to have intersections that are very far apart you need to have streets that are without intersections and then what you end up with is something like gurgaon is today mm. where in the heart of what is considered the the main gurgaon area nothing is walkable right it's, it's it's a good city to drive through and it's exactly that these are what you would call flyby cities right you want to drive as fast uh, through them but you don't want to really immerse yourself in these cities and that's the problem is that these two things are in conflict. If you want to build a city that is a, that is extremely attractive, then you have to sacrifice some amount of motorability uh, in them. What is it that we as a country, as a society, as a culture, miss or underrate about urbanization? So whether it is Gandhi before independence romanticizing the villages, whether it is successive governments since independence speaking about the importance of villages, yeah. What is it about us that explains our almost aversion, as it were, to urbanization? 
Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't go back as far as Gandhi because I think uh, his uh, pragmatism of uh, sort of protecting villages actually fits very well with how we look at cities today. It's, it's about uh, sustaining the, the current ways of cities. So his uh, pushing forward a, a rural agenda was not, it shouldn't be read as necessarily an attack on cities. Okay. What I would really like to critique is actually how we've approached urbanization in the last 40 uh, years or so. And I think that is, is, is something that is probably more relevant. It's unfortunately, our Indian uh, uh, planners who have been the kind of uh, forebearers of, uh, of this uh, our urban approach are still enamored and still sort of drawn towards the automobile-oriented approach of European and American cities back in the 1960s. So we're still chasing the dream that they uh, set for themselves back in 1960s or so, and they themselves have moved away from that dream, mm. right? So you're seeing uh, today in, in uh, Europe, in North America, uh, the, the, the cities are tearing down freeways, they're tearing down uh, road ramps, they're pulling out flyovers, and they're replacing that with pedestrianized boulevards, with walkways, with public spaces, etc. You you see cities like London that have introduced congestion pricing, and it's not a new concept anymore. They've had this now for more than a decade, where they're trying to prevent cars from coming into downtown. You have extremely ex high prices for parking uh, in the main uh, uh, central business district areas of these cities. We're seeing all of these happening in the in the countries and in the cities that we want to emulate, but we're emulating them of 40 years ago. So why, why are we doing that? Why can't we learn from the mistakes that they made and they've accepted that they made and that they are trying to correct now? We don't aren't yet in the problem stage that they are right now. We can actually address these issues before we get there. Unfortunately, and I will take one example being the Mumbai uh, uh, Coastal Road. For those of you who don't know this, this is the 20-odd the kilometer coastal road that uh, is being planned along Mumbai, along the entire western coast of Mumbai. Now, the western coast of Mumbai is the coast which has Marine Drive, uh, Bandstand, Carter Road, Wally Seaface, and all these lovely public spaces where the average Mumbaiker goes to experience the sea. And if you've seen the Hazar and One Bollywood movies where the hero will go sit on the rocks and look at the sea and dream about his lover and look at the sunset, right? Now, what they are planning to do is put a huge road right in front of that and not just in front of that, but actually a big wall in front of that road so you cannot see the sea beyond that and what they're planning is a few little promenade public spaces that go beyond the stretch but to access them you'll need a car because they will not be walkable spaces there'll be spaces that you take your car park somewhere then cross under the bridge and go into those little public spaces and i, I can get into letters why those don't work but anyways this, this uh, expressway that they are planning to build the primary focus of that is to to connect this, uh, the central business district of South Mumbai to the suburbs in the north. And what that's going to effectively do, even if it is successful and successful, and many people are actually questioning those numbers that they are quoting, uh, that they will be able to attract. But even if they are able to attract that, all that it's going to do is, is create more traffic congestion in the uh, central business district of Mumbai. It's going to get in more cars. And we have to see that uh, there are so many more practical, uh, environmentally friendly ways of meeting the same targets and achieving the same results that are not being considered. And that is actually, I think, uh, the problem with the way we are approaching uh, urbanization. I've just given you one classic ex uh, example that comes to mind because I am from the city of Mumbai, or rather I was from the city of Mumbai. 
But there are examples that we're seeing all across India. You're seeing that with the uh, the Yamuna Expressway that was built, the uh, uh, Delhi Noida uh, uh, Highway that was also built. There are so many of these examples that are there across India, which is very disheartening to see. Fair enough. Since you brought up the uh, topic, when it comes to Mumbai, I have yet to meet a Punekar who doesn't hate the city. And I've yet to meet a Mumbaiker <laughs> who in some way or the other doesn't try to look down upon Pune. But between the two cities, and you've spent a fairly large amount of time in both, which do you think gets urbanization right and why? So they both have their quirks and they obviously both have their advantages. I think one thing that Mumbai did very well in the last 10 years has sort of not been as good. But I think at least till 2010, what Mumbai did very well is public transit. I mean, we uh, it was easily uh, the most... Uh, is the exhaustive public transit system in the country by far and even in terms of mode share more people use public transit in mumbai than any other city in india this is even the height of what delhi metro is today it still doesn't carry even a fraction of what the mumbai suburban railways does and mumbai suburban railways okay keep that aside even if you take the the bst bus services that carries more people than most metro uh, services across uh, india as well so Mumbai does public transit very well. I think that is one thing that is definitely in its favor. Uh, where I I feel Pune has probably got it right uh, of late is that I, 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 at least in the the kind of the urban expansion that are happening around Pune, uh, I see some sense of mixed land use that is that is at least being uh, promoted in those developments. You see these. I mean, the residential colony and just outside that there will be uh, for your daily needs grocery store and a few restaurants and th there is some attempt towards that i feel mumbai's approach has still been uh, a lot more controlled where we are still looking at land use as these big swaths of land where we want big chunks of residential and uh, big chunks of commercial and uh, that sense it's not as bad as delhi uh, mind you but uh, I think that's still probably, if I, if I have to compare, I think that's something that Pune has done a little better than Mumbai. I, at least where Mumbai is concerned, I completely agree. I uh, spent all my college years in uh, Mumbai. And when it comes to transport and the ease with which you can move across what is, in effect, a very large city, I agree with you. It's probably unparalleled. Mm. But that leads me to a follow-up question. Why do we in India struggle with an integrated transport mobility plan? And I don't mean to sound very complicated. All I mean is, why can't I buy a single pass that allows me to use all transport systems within a city? So I can okay. see it happen in other cities in the world. What stops us? Yeah. Is it hardware? Is it software? Or is it just bureaucracy? It's bureaucracy. I mean, I think for uh, so before moving to Canada, I worked with WRI India. And for, the, for my 10 years that I was there, for 10 years, this conversation has been happening with cities like Mumbai, Pune, <laughs> Bangalore. And... Almost always the stumbling block. So technology is definitely not the stumbling block because we know the technology is there. Other countries and other cities have adopted it, and they've adopted it like ten years ago. So, uh, for instance, right now in Vancouver, I have a smart card, which is something like a credit card where I can load money on that, and I can travel on the bus, I can travel on the train, I can travel on the ferry that connects me to a, a neighboring city as well. So I, I pretty much use it for every transit service in in the in the city. And in some other uh, countries, they've taken that one step further. You can even pay for your parking. You can even uh, pay for some day-to-day -day groceries as well. There right. are some uh, uh, incentives for that as well. 
So technology is definitely not the barrier anymore. Uh, what barriers exist are some are infrastructural because, uh, for instance, let's say if the suburban railways in in Mumbai have to in, implement a system like that, we don't have the the thing of like a passenger load entering from one particular point. So the entry points and the exit points need to be very controlled for a system like this to work. Mm. You can't have open points because the the passenger has to swipe their card at some point and then swipe their card at another point to show that they have left the system and that's how the fares are calculated. So, so but those are infrastructural barriers that can be overcome. The bigger challenges is things like fair, uh, fair revenue sharing, right? Because if somebody swipes their, uh, starts their journey by bus and swipes their swipes at the point of entry in the bus and then swipes out uh, much later when they take a train and another bus, then both these agencies have to decide a way of sharing right. revenue. And, right. and there are good models already established on how this can be done. So the only hurdle right now is the bureaucratic pressure for these people to say, okay, let's sit down and make this work. And yeah, with the willingness to share data, the willingness to trust each other and uh, be willing to share some infrastructure costs as well. And yeah, I think this should be done. I think Delhi Metro is making some attempts towards it. I, I know there are some other smaller cities that have introduced the smart card, but as yet, I don't think any of them cross transit systems as far as I know. Mm. Uh, but hopefully we won't be having this conversation in another five years. I hope not at least. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, speaking of transportation systems, and you touched upon this briefly earlier, uh, walking is usually underrated according to you in uh, Indian cities, and for the most part, I agree. And one Mia Kalpa, uh, both of us wrote a couple of columns in the year 2018 about uh, the widening of footpaths in Pune, especially Ferguson College Road. And now having seen how the footpaths have worked out, I was completely wrong. Walking is a complete pleasure on that road. But the one gripe that I still have is the so-called smart roads or smart footpaths in Pune. We still don't, according to me, prioritize enough bus stops, number one. And number two, the ability to use buses in Pune is still just a complete utter disaster. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. Shouldn't both be happening in parallel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you. With agree with you on this more. Uh, that of course we definitely have to do both parallelly. But one thing that I want, would like to say is that uh, doing more of uh, or doing better bus transit doesn't necessarily need more physical space on the road. Sure. And I, I, I know Pune is trying the BRT and I have some strong opinions about that. But uh, what, 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 what my point is, is that having better bus transit doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of pedestrian infrastructure. No, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And almost... Anywhere I, I, where there is a priority. And so we in this uh, planning practice try to look at it as a pyramid of priority, right? And we put pedestrians right on the top, followed by uh, transit. And of course, there are certain instances where you might want it to go the other way. But as a general principle, it's pedestrians, transit, uh, paratransit, that is your taxis, rickshaws, and all of that coming in third, uh, along with freight movement. And finally, at the bottom is private uh, aut automobile uh, users. Right. So that's, if you look at it, it from that perspective, I think you should, as a general rule, not compromise uh, footpath and space for transit. And you, in most cases, you don't need to because transit doesn't necessarily need more road space. It just needs more priority for the road space that is allocated to them. Correct. 
but uh, uh, on the other hand, pedestrian space comes at the expense of automobile space, and that is a choice that cities have to make if they really want to get good, uh, uh, vibrant cities. Speaking of which, I actually didn't have this uh, on my list of questions, but now that uh, you spoke about this, I can't help but ask. So, I probably think I got my question wrong. So, absolutely, I agree with you. Better footpaths and broader footpaths, awesome. We need better public transport because with increasing urban density, you're going to have more vehicular traffic and on narrow roads, that's a problem. But one thing that you kind of touched upon, and now that I think about it, probably the most important, why on earth do we not price parking better in India? <laughs> I mean, that is that's a f big question that organizations like WRI and ITDP and a lot of people who are in this space have been raising. And there is no better answer than this is just down to pure politics of uh, upper class people like us, right? We've been able to bully our way into, into this by, by stating price. I mean, if you look at the numbers, just compare it for the numbers on absolute value, not even doing purchasing power parity, just on absolute value, Indian cities pay not even one tenth of what cities out, outside India pay, pay for parking in the, in the downtown area. I think so. You can park your at last I checked. You can park your vehicle in downtown Mumbai for uh, some fifteen rupees an hour, and maybe in Bandarkula complex at the most for like thirty rupees an hour. That that's the upper limit that it goes to. Okay, so I can tell you for a fact, like in cities like New York and uh, all of them, it's a minimum of what would it work out to? Like seven hundred rupees an hour. I think it would work work out to. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm getting the maths right. <laughs> but yeah, approximately around that, that's what it would work out to for, for, for parking in the downtown area. The, the other anomaly that we have in India is on-street parking is actually cheaper than parking off-street. And that's fundamentally wrong, right? Because on-street parking is more convenient and you're creating more problems for people. Uh, you're using a more co costly infrastructure. So on-street parking should be a lot costlier than off-street parking, but in India, it's the other way around, right? It's costlier to park in those underground parking lots in, in, in the malls than it is to actually park on the street. Uh, the good way to understand this issue is imagine if that space had to be occupied tomorrow by a shop. Yes, how much real estate, uh, how much rent would that person have to pay for that space, right? Then if, if you even charge a fraction of that for parking, it would be a much, a, a lot more than what we currently uh, charge for parking. And that's, I think, what is very important to say. This is like, it's and if, if the car user is not paying it, then indirectly we are all paying for it through through a tax. So imagine if we actually charge those parking tariffs and that money is, is used to cross-subsidize public transit, which is what is done in many cities all, all, all over the world, then you get afford a lot better transit service. And at the same time, you disincentivize people from using their car to for a trip that they could essentially do with transit. So I think without doubt, this should be the very first move that city should make is get parking pricing correct. Uh, there are lots of good uh, theoretical articles that I can share about parking and parking pricing. And the, the most important thing to note here is that you don't need to have paid parking everywhere, right? And the, uh, if parking actually follows the market principle, you will see that places which are out in the distant area where parking is not really a problem, it, actually charging parking, charging for parking there is counterproductive because the cost of collecting the parking fee sort of uh, is higher than the, the revenue that you generate from that parking. So you only need to price it where it matters. 
and during the time period that it matters you don't need to price it in the night perhaps and stuff like that but during peak hours you price it price it correctly by market generally not market principles but they say the price it at the uh, because again essentially economist students i can tell you this thing right because it this is a, a classic case of fixed capacity right it's fixed capacity so if you uh set a market price and because of the problems of uh, monopolistic competition you're going to have under utilization of the resources so you want to actually fix it at the price which has the maximum utilization of the parking spots and generally they say if you fix it at a price where around 85% of the spots get filled up then you it's a good thing because then it still keeps a 15% open for the search to, to avoid the search cost of searching for a free parking space and right. all of that so that's generally the accepted principle around uh, parking pricing and it's a, it's a great field for applied economics to actually understand how to price parking absolutely yeah okay uh, we're roughly half an hour into our uh, conversation hopefully to everybody in the college clear about how passionate you are about urbanization and associated topics and i've either forgotten uh, your answer or i've never asked you this question which would be quite a surprise but what made you take up urbanization as a field of study in the first place what interested you after you did your economics okay So it's, a good, uh, it's a uh, good question. So I've always actually been interested in this field, and you know, like a, a lot of us, when we are in the tenth standard and uh, stuff, we we just go with the flow. We don't really uh, choose streams because we think, okay, future, I want to study this. It's just like at that particular point of time, this is something that I like. So at that point of time, I thought I liked economics, and I said, okay, let me go ahead and and uh, make this my thing. uh somewhere along the line i sort of got a little disillusioned with economics or rather i would say economists got a little disillusioned with me because i couldn't keep up i mean I, uh, economics for me in in uh, in undergrad was a lot about uh, reading text and understanding the theories of smith and keynes and marshall and i, I really liked that but then uh fast forward to the masters program and it became a, a lot about understanding the mathematics behind economics and it it became something that was to me it, a lot of it went over my head and uh, I, i sort of lost the passion for the subject as well because i thought like okay this is i mean it, it's gone beyond the theory of it to to try and really force fit a model into something and and i know it works for a lot of people but this was not something that i sort of really liked at the same time uh, i was drawn towards urban issues uh, for the longest time uh, i did not know that i was eligible for a career in that at that point of time i thought this was something that was only open to people who had done a civil engineering or uh, uh, an architectural uh, degree uh, but when i looked up the course on sapt university uh, and my the person who's currently my wife at that point of time is actually the one who in college she uh, her name is dian she is also a student uh, at gokish was ashish's batchmate she had actually uh, looked it up and she saw that i'm eligible for this degree uh if i had to clear the technical uh, test that they had and i studied a little bit for the test and i cleared it and uh yeah i was one of two non uh non architect non engineering students in in that course uh, but it 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 was great because i i, I think we were the two of us were able to bring a slightly different uh dimension to the thinking and it was we also learned a lot i mean i i i learned about architecture i learned about people like uh, bibi doshi and khan and all of these great architects and i learned to think like an architect i mean to appreciate space i did not even know what that meant before to appreciate angles and space and how space gets used and form and function and all of these terms i began to recognize what they meant 
and yeah it it was a great uh, opportunity which i'm quite happy about speaking of learning uh, one thing that both neha and i and indeed everybody who knows you has teased you about is your almost addiction to youtube so jokes <laughs> jokes apart how should we learn from you about how to use youtube as a great way to learn what are we missing in terms of youtube usage no i think it's it's not uh, so for for urban planning per se i think youtube is good because uh, urban planning is a very visual uh, field right? and i think uh, having a video out there to demonstrate uh, a lot of these uh, things is, is fantastic uh, so i i i would obviously encourage people to look at a lot of uh, uh, youtube videos and i can send you all later some of my favorite ch- uh, channels that i look at uh, f- for feed on this yes, but i think more than uh, more than just uh, youtube it's the it's the complete uh, i would say democratization of uh, education that has, ha- has happened in the last 5 or 6 years uh, and ashish can actually watch for this is back in our time we had to spend a lot of time in the library to 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 learn a lot of stuff now today you can go out there and say i am an expert on jane jacobs you could have never read a jane jacobs book in your life because you can read synthesis which are sort of contextualized to today's time you can read you can see videos about her views you can get a lot of different uh, perspectives on, on that topic and you can still have a fairly good understanding of what she uh, envisaged uh, and what her ideas were without actually having read her books so i think in in that sense i would say and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because now we are so, we are bombarded with so much of information uh, and we need to take in a lot more so it's 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 fine to it but i don't feel i i i sh- don't think anyone should feel like oh i'm not really an expert unless i actually go through the books if of course certain books that you really like you should definitely read them but i think it's also there's no harm in learning from the internet and youtube i think is fantastic i think there's as i said it's a democratization of education right i think uh, yeah from that perspective it's good so it's weird but i arguably and I'm committing a bit of heresy as an academician, but I think certain things are better learned on YouTube than in the classroom. For sure, for sure. And I said it's it's the advantage of having the visual means for for a mm. for a subject like urban planning. I think that is like extremely important because they can tell you something at the same time, show you a map, and show you why that's relevant. From an urbanization viewpoint, what is it that we get right but Canada doesn't? Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll just talk about Vancouver because I I've still now not too much of outside Vancouver. So I think um, so I live uh, in Vancouver, which is on the west coast of Canada, uh, and it's very often voted among the top three to, to top five uh, global cities to live in. In, in, in across the different indexes, along with Melbourne, Sydney, and all that, Vancouver is is right up there. and i can vouch that it's a, it's a beautiful city and it gets a lot of things right uh, uh especially around transit around uh, walking infrastructure density mixed land use all of that i think is perfect uh, so since ashish's question is about one thing that they could potentially learn from indian cities uh, i think uh, the, i said this that the cause of its biggest success in some ways is also probably the cause of its one biggest limitation and that is the fact that i think vancouver is a little too regimented and a little too planned and a little too controlled uh while say this is see, right now i i live on a university campus uh, i live in in the uh, university of british columbia campus and 
uh, where I live, it's a beautiful space. I mean, the walking infrastructure is top notch. Uh, it's it's green. It's and the public spaces are absolutely phenomenal. But when I say the walking infrastructure is is top notch, but for me to walk to somewhere, it's really far. And I I mean that in a good way is that uh, I can walk to a beach and that's very close by. I can walk to a public space and that's extremely close by. I can walk to a tennis court. All of that is close by. But if I want to walk to a restaurant, that's not going to be very far. There are very few options. If I want to walk to a grocery store, there are very few options. Uh, the reason for that is because the land use here is extremely controlled. If if someone wants to open up a shop or a restaurant, it requires you to go through a plethora of permissions before you can actually get to that stage. And even they, they don't let that happen because they have controlled the land to such a high degree, right? So you compare that with, say, something like a, a Bombay University, where there are a hazard in one of these street vendors and these little things that mushroom up all across the place. So it gives a lot more options. So you would imagine that there are the equal number of students out here, uh, food is expensive, and you would definitely see there is an economic uh, pull for something like this to happen, for these changes to happen. But unfortunately, because it is so regimented, these economic forces are not allowed to play. Mm -hmm. And Ashish will tell you that I'm a big fan of just letting the market do its thing to the largest extent possible. Of course, there is need for some controls. But that's what they probably don't do. And it has its trade-offs. I mean, obviously, you, you get a very clean and a very neat city. But at the same time, you, you get a very dull city in some respects. And uh, many people who criticize Vancouver criticize it from that perspective. They say, yes, Vancouver is very beautiful. And yes, Vancouver works like a clock. But at the same time, it doesn't have any vibrancy in it. They say it's a little dull city as compared to a New York or a London. And that probably explains why Vancouver in the evenings is quite dead. It's like post uh, once the sun sets, it's it's quite a dead city. There's not much happening because everything is so regimented and so controlled. And yeah, I think that is the one criticism that I have of Vancouver. You actually made it uh, to about 42 minutes without you having mentioned Barcelona once, which is a pleasant <laughs> surprise. But that would be an example of a city that gets it just right, right? I mean, so. Um, for one, I don't do, talk too much because I've never actually been to Barcelona. I mean, I've <laughs> only heard how, how lovely it is. And I hope if I actually go there, I don't get disappointed. But uh, yeah, the reason I talk about Barcelona often is, is it's for, uh, people like me, it's, it's very often quoted as a city that that got a lot of urban planning principles right at the, I won't say at the beginning because all these cities are extremely old, but at the early stages of modern planning, right? At the early stages, they realized, okay, we have a downtown area that was never built for the car. Let's keep it that way. And they've, uh, they've protected a lot of these spaces are, are pedestrianized. They've pushed out uh, vehicles. They've got that, uh, that right, the right kind of blend. The other important thing, of, uh, and uh, Ashish and I did a podcast on this some time back, is where we compared uh, Barcelona and Chandigarh, right? And both these cities, if you look at an aerial view of these two, two cities, they kind of look similar because they both have a, a, a rectangular grid of uh, ro roads uh, the, where roads meet at right angles and they create these big blocks that are a rectangular square shaped. Now, the, so if you look at an aerial view of both these two cities and you don't look at the scale, you think, okay, they are quite identical, but the scale is actually where they differ. Uh, the Chandigarh grid is something like 800 meters by 1.2 kilometers, whereas the, uh, the 
Barcelona grid, I think, is around 250 by 250 meters. So what that effectively means is that you have an intersection every 250 meters in Barcelona. So at every 250 meters, you have a, a, an opportunity to cross the street. Whereas with Chandigarh, it's every 800 to 1.2 kilometers. So I think it's almost a 10 to 15 minute walk to cross a road. And that's that in itself makes a big difference on how walkable a city is. So although Chandigarh, just like Barcelona, and probably even better than Barcelona, has very nice wide sidewalks and shaded avenues with uh, uh, trees growing on either side and all of that. But you'll see a lot more people walking on a Barcelona street because there is a lot more to walk to. There's a lot more things that you can access from walking uh, by walking. So infrastructure is only one part of the puzzle. The second thing that is equally important is uh, about a walkable city is having things that are at walkable distance. And that is, I think, where uh, Barcelona and a lot of other cities, Paris uh, as well, gets it right. I think even in India, if you look at it, uh, Mumbai, uh, is a lot of downtown Mumbai is walkable. A lot of things that are, uh, you can actually, you don't need to get into a vehicle and it's actually faster to walk to a lot of uh, places than it is to be in a vehicle. So yeah, I think that's a good learning from there. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, there was an article recently in the, I forget which newspaper I read it in, that spoke about uh, making free left turns always available for motorists. So when you're at a traffic yeah. junction, you should have the ability to turn left without waiting for a signal. Yeah. So I, I remember sending you that article uh, and there were two very interesting parts about it. One, do you think something like that will work in India? And second, could you speak to all of us a little bit about how the Canadians do it? That I didn't know it and it was amazing to listen to. So uh, one is by traffic engineering science, uh, free lefts, yeah, free lefts in the Indian con uh, context. Uh, is, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it takes a while to not get it. Yeah. So free lefts uh, is the norm, right? And, uh, and even I was uh, actually shocked when I left India to, to, to realize that, that uh, other countries do the free left. Now, free left is the norm in the urban setting. Not, I'm not talking about in uh, outside uh, the urban setting in, in your highways, but in this within cities, free left is the norm. But that makes sense and, and is doable only with the necessary condition that motorists respect the law that they have to stop when a pedestrian is crossing along with them, right? And that happens by default uh, in Canada, in America, and in, in Europe because. One, I guess there's, there's a, a lot better training at the time of getting your license, but there's also stronger enforcement. If you happen to uh, uh, break that rule of when a pedestrian is crossing, that's like automatic demerit points that can really cost you a lot of uh, money. So I would say, yes, this can work in India only if you're willing to do the other thing of actually ensuring that the, uh, the rule is followed, that cars give way for uh, pedestrians. Why I say it's it's, uh, it's a good norm to have is because you free, free up the flow of the intersection a lot more because see, pedestrians, typically a, a signal phase lasts for about 40 seconds or so. Uh, pedestrians will cross in the first 15 seconds or so. Uh, the, the remaining time, why do you want to hold back traffic, right? So it, it's probably good that they do the free left uh, in that time. Once they have waited for pedestrians to cross and wait again if a pedestrian happens to come at that point of time. But the rest of the time, let them cross. That's uh, perfectly good. Uh, but the second part of your question as to how they do it in uh, Vancouver, mm -hmm. 
So Vancouver, as I said, is a, uh, I don't know if I said this, but it's, it's a it's a great city, much like Barcelona and Chandigarh, where you have a continuous repetition of forearm intersections, uh, one followed uh, by each other. So you, uh, in, in the Indian context, when you have a forearm intersection, we typically have four phases of our signal uh, cycle, right? So where each arm of the road will have all green and then they can go left, straight or right. Then followed, it goes in an anti-clockwise manner, and then it repeats after four. So that's a typical way, typical way we design signals in the Indian context. Now, Vancouver and a lot of cities in the developed world, they do it with just two signal phases, right? So you'll have one. So let's say if it's a north-south and east-west road, you'll have one gre green phase where north and south move together, and then another green phase where e uh, east and west move together. So now your question will be, but what about uh, the uh, left turn, yeah. So, what about that? So, they do it along with the traffic coming in the opposite direction. With the caveat that just like you yield for pedestrians, you have to yield for motorists when they're coming in front of you. So, you always motorists in the same lane had the right of way over you. So, you wait till you find a gap and then you you cut across. Now, again, all of this will only work if we have proper motorist discipline which has to be taken. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Do you implement uh, schemes like these uh, when you have bad traffic discipline or do you wait for traffic discipline and then implement schemes like this? And I don't honestly know the right answer, but th this is why these systems work in Vancouver. This is why intersections are a lot, uh, have a much higher capacity because you immediately double the capacity there, right? You go from four cycles down to two cycles and it makes for a lot greater throughput for your intersections. And I think that's an important lesson uh, to do. One thing that I would say about uh, thing without worrying about traffic discipline and all that, one general observation that I have, and I've always been struggling for an answer for this, is why are signal cycles in typical Indian cities so long? long? Yeah. They literally are like sometimes three and a half to four minutes. The average length for a signal cycle uh, in Vancouver and most uh, Western uh, cities is about 60 seconds. Right? And we almost do two to three times, sometimes even five times that amount. And that in itself leads to a lot of backlog of traffic, which I think is some area that we can definitely explore about improving. So uh, again, a question that I actually didn't have on the list. I just finished teaching the first year students principles of economics and the second year students have done far more work in micro already, obviously. There's a lovely mm -hmm. book called uh, Games Indians Play by Veeraghunathan. And one of the okay. games games that we play, I know your fascination with game theory, so perhaps you'll be interested in hearing this, is he models uh, traffic in India as a game theory problem and speaks about the prisoner's dilemma, that you're going to end up in yeah. cheating because you anticipate that the other guy is going to cheat. Yeah. From a cultural viewpoint, not from a theoretic viewpoint, from a cultural viewpoint, what is it that makes us approach traffic as a prisoner's dilemma, but other countries mm -hmm. quite obviously do not? Yeah, I mean, I mean that comes across with anything where it's not unique to traffic in India. It's, it's, it's to ask the question is also, why do systems break down in India when they don't break down in other countries? And yep. uh, so I, I would put it down to a combination of factors. And I, 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 I'm not an expert as to why this happens. Because a lot of it is, it goes beyond. Uh, it's definitely not planning factors. It's definitely, to, to me, it com comes okay. down to the thing about resources. And I, I think this is, uh, I, I mean, to those of you who remember watching Dark Knight, and this is line where the Joker says, right, is that when systems come down to real uh, 
real bad situations all of us deep down now and i'm really paraphrasing here but all around deep down inside we are this barbarians and we will uh, react to the situation when it goes to really terrible and this covid situation has shown us right when neighbor turns against neighbor because now we are suddenly dealing with a situation that seems so horrific i see that even in canada where the, the best of times everyone is very polite with each other suddenly when this this pandemic came about uh, no one knows how to react and we've gone back to our old savage selves so i think in that's perhaps the reason why a lot of systems break down in india is that there are so many people competing for so less resources and if you don't mm. push your way through another person might come and push you through and that's a classic prisoner dilemma problem right you you anticipate that somebody else is going to do it and that's why you yourself um, do the wrong thing uh, and uh, the reason why it probably doesn't happen so much in canada is because there are more resources and there is a lot of the social shaming that will happen if you do it where you know that in india there are so many people and it's not really going to be that much of a problem if i break their rules so i won't put it down to anything beyond that i i, I wish there was a an urban urban planning answer to that question but unfortunately i think it is it comes down to just more people fighting for lesser resources no okay two very broad questions about this uh, broad definitions of urbanization really so first is our definition of urbanization itself i'm no expert but based on what i've read apparently was defined in the 1960s we haven't bothered refining it since then number one and second it would seem and again this is an amateur when it comes to urbanization but second it would seem that we are not really 33% urbanized depending upon what definition we use absolutely. it can range from between 30 to 60% absolutely yeah so i'm in fact right now i'm doing this study on uh, the delhi ncr region and i can tell you that uh, currently i think it, it shows about 40% of the ncr region is actually rural but in many which ways uh, rural by the current definition of what is urban and what is rural but in many which ways they practically urban and i think uh, if anything now this post pandemic world will show us that this urban rural divide is is something that will completely go in the developed world mm -hmm. and will slowly start moving up in india as well because now with the access of technology the richer people will actually want to live in what is countryside right and if you see a lot of what is happening uh, now in in the developed world is uh, this this suburbia and countryside di distinction has almost happened in the sense that a lot of new housing that is happening is is far from because you can connect with technology uh, to your workplace now you have this remote working co uh, concept as well so it's the, the need to have densities uh, to some extent will still be there we will still have uh, this because there are not all activities that can happen uh, remotely right but the volume of density and the size of density i think in many ways has reached its, its crescendo in the developed world and has already started to uh, dissipate and that will soon happen in uh, india as well so i i would uh, say yes we need to change the way we define uh, urbanization in the way they look at it as the number of people that are working non agrarian uh, jobs and all of that that's a current way of defining it i think it more boils down to what do we how do we define settlements now human settlements yeah. not really bother about how, whether we classify them as urban and rural but how do we classify them from an administrative perspective uh, so that the the right kind of infrastructure and resources can be given depending on the kind of region it is yeah. okay so 
having said all of that and based on your uh, response is it such a bad idea to set a target for an urbanization rate for the next 10 years or so so i don't know whether we have a target whereas we I don't think we do but should we friend no i don't think we should have a uh, so we we know what urbanization is expected so we we taking it as a given it's not something that we want to happen but we uh, we are following the trend and we say this is what is going to happen now how do we plan for it so i think this is a very interesting point because i i feel there's a there's a kind of a uh, something missing in the way we look at it uh, as planners in india is that mm-hmm. we say that india will be predominantly urban by 2050 and all of these uh, really? 2040 and actually what the numbers are Yep. Now, there are only three possible things that could happen in this case. One is that our cities can become denser by either going higher and or more crowded. Or the second is that we can sprawl out. Or the third is that we can build new cities. Right. right? So there are only three mathematical possibilities that can potentially happen. Yeah. Now, most experts agree that most Indian cities are already at peak density. We have cities like Mumbai that are around thirty thousand people per square kilometer, and there. Yeah, much higher than most good city. I mean, I think Paris is one exception which has a fairly high density, and even that is around fifteen thousand people per square kilometer. But most other cities like Barcelona, Vancouver, and all around five thousand or so people per square kilometer. So we can see our, our Indian cities are way higher. Mm. The second possibility we said is sprawl, but we already know cities like Delhi, NCR, and all they are like regions in them in themselves. And right. I mean, no, we don't. The, the whole problems associated with sprawl. So the only third possibility is new towns, new whether they're new satellite towns or new self-sufficient towns. But this is what is going to be developed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't see that as part of the urban agenda in India. We are not thinking new towns. I mean, China is and did for a large extent, but still, right now our, our thought process around new towns are all these technology hub or capital cities like Amravati and all all these kind of ideas, but not real ideas about organic growth around smaller towns to become the new big towns. We are not thinking of it from that perspective, and that is something that I feel is uh, is uh, needs to come to the to the discussion. We need to see how the current tier three towns become the new big cities of India. Like if if you can imagine what Bangalore was in 1990s, right? There are currently around. Maybe fifty or sixty such cities that are the Bangalore's of nineteen ninety. How do the, we ensure that if they are to become the Bangalore of two thousand twenty, they don't uh, result in the problems that Bangalore of two thousand twenty has faced? And that is, I think, what our real uh, missed opportunity is that we are not really looking at. We are not looking at where these tier three cities are growing and how do we direct that growth better. So two related questions that students have asked in the chat window. Now is a good time to incorporate them. I'll keep on doing that if I think that the question fits in over here. Rather than take them at the end, I'll fit them into our conversation. Sure. Adya asks, uh, and this is related to town planning being done better. What are your thoughts yeah. on Acrosanti, the city of the future? This is the town in Arizona that combines uh, ecology and architecture. So to the extent that you're familiar with it, what are your thoughts about it, and how much of yeah. it is adaptable in India? Yeah, so I'm, I I'm being very honest. I don't know any details about this particular city. Uh, mm-hmm. But generally, I mean, these uh, city of the future concepts. I I don't know about this particular city, but I, I'll talk about like uh, some of these things that are planned in India, like the science city, knowledge city, pharma city, and all of these uh, things. Most of the time, we see these as these greenfield projects. It's like uh, almost like 
will go and put up like a factory out there and it will grow i mean and it will be fine on its own but we have to recognize that cities are like organisms that they, they have they are sustainable at different scales and and they require different kinds of care and attention at these different scales you can't just go and set up a a, a big city or a medium sized city from scratch you need it to let it grow from a, a smaller point and to grow bigger so what i feel is oh, how we do it is not necessarily go and build these greenfield cities which is what china did in, and you can you see a lot of youtube videos of these ghost towns in china right yeah. now where they build these huge cities with huge malls and huge building complexes and all that for nobody because they built it at a scale that wasn't organic growth it was mm. huge big chunks uh, put together at one time and i think those generally i tend to be skeptical about i don't know this city that she's uh, asked about is is like that but uh, yeah that's my basic thought about stuff like that it's not well, like a lot of yeah. questions about stuff that i've never heard about should india adopt the hukku system i have oh, no oh, idea system so i'll explain I that uh, also are there questions about this topics <laughs> which is awesome right which is perfect. yeah i know so yeah. acrosanti i myself don't know a lot about it and i might be wrong about the state also but i think it is a city that was developed or is being developed in arizona and the idea is to combine uh, ecological principles with architectural principles to build a more sustainable town and it's been around okay. for a while i think about 30 years or maybe more than yeah. that i don't know but yeah. that's the background to acrosanti Okay, and yeah. jay's question in fact i was about to ask you about both of his questions the hukou system is a system adopted in china and yeah. again this is me paraphrasing and speaking off the cuff so the details are probably slightly different but the idea is it's something like a pan card in india or a aadhar card in india but the idea mm-hmm. is it is tied to your place of residence so if you want oh, to okay, yeah. organize mass migration then you simply shift to hukou and in a sense a chinese citizen is forced to move there so shenzhen developed yeah. because overnight a large number of chinese citizens had their hukou re-registered in shenzhen and that's how ghost yeah. town became shenzhen so should yeah. india adopt the hukou system uh yeah so, so, sorry i did not know it was called that and my answer is to that and I'm sorry for being very blunt but absolutely no yeah because so, i'm a firm believer in uh, free market principles adam smith and all of that thing and nothing it should be freer than the human spirit and the human body right we cannot tell people where they should live and shouldn't live and i for china for all its economic might and its economic growth has done that at the sacrifice of this essential right of a person to decide where he or she wants to live yep uh, i think if we create the right kind of incentives uh, people will follow i forget which economist said that right uh, vote with their feet i don't Tibu. remember that Tibu. but table right so people will also migrate with their feet if if you create the right kind of infrastructure the people will follow <laughs> for those of you who played sim city online you will know that right you create the right infrastructure and you will get the people to come there so I, that is not to say that the chinese system didn't meet its uh, objectives but what have they sacrificed to meet those objectives and i think for me that's a bigger price to have paid uh, so, the second question for- about Sorry, whenever Sorry, I talk about yeah. the hukou system, I always say that uh, Indians should be careful about wanting to be more like China, because the cost at which China has arrived at where it is is probably not a fair price yeah. to pay. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, and I know, I and I don't mean to paint it in a complete uh, bad term because there are a lot of great things that we can learn from China. There's a lot of uh, efficiency in the way they they do things, which I think is really good to emulate, not just by Indians but all over the world. Uh, but on this one aspect, I think. 
I would rather go with India's inefficiencies and freedoms than uh, for the the greater economic benefit. I've just finished talking uh, about opportunity cost, so this is a good. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the second question is how should India address land acquisition process? This, this is actually a very good question, and I think there are some good models uh, to uh, to look at. I I, I talk briefly about uh, a model that uh, Gujarat has actually done quite well on, called the town planning scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I basically everybody could see this question, so I'll just repeat the question in case no uh, people have not seen it. It's how should India address the land acquisition problem in urban areas? Uh, so there are multiple models that of acquiring land from the basic simple, simplistic model where the government just says I'll take over your land and I'll pay you whatever I feel like, which is what the Chinese model is somewhat uh, like. Oh, but a second more collective model is what the Gujarat model has, which is the town planning scheme. And I'm calling it a Gujarat model because it's sort of gained momentum in Gujarat mm-hmm. uh, for the first time in India. But now that model has sort of spread to other parts of the country as well. So in that model, what you basically do is uh, is the the aggregator. In most cases, it's the government will go to the to these farmers or to the landowners and say, okay, we will buy your huge chunks of land, but we will give you back that land, but not the entire hundred percent of your land. I will give you back, say, if you give me hundred acres, I will give you back eighty acres. I will keep twenty acres for myself. But generally, it's around forty sixty. So what does the government do with the remaining forty acres? They use part of that to build the the infrastructure for that land. That is the roads, the streets, and the other utilities and services that are needed. As well as they keep some ch- chunks of that land to make money to pay for this whole uh, scheme. Now, in this way, there is incentive because the person who's given up their land is getting back some land. The second thing that they also do is they regularize regularize the size, the the plot dimensions. In, if you had a kind of a Crazy shaped plot. They will give you a nice rectangular plot. So that when you want to sell that plot to a builder, it becomes a lot easier to do. Mm. And even though that the government has taken away, say, forty percent of that land, now the remaining sixty percent is with you, gets a lot higher value because of the fact that now all this infrastructure has come up. So this model has seen a lot of success, and the. Most important aspect to making this a success is being transparent and being collective in this decision making. So they actually go to the farmer, the farmers negotiate with the uh, with the aggregator, the government uh, as a consortium. There is that conversation and discussion that happen, and then it reaches uh, uh, success. So I think that's one good model uh, that I think there's a lot of learning for the rest of the country. So, which city in India you think has done a good job of what you just said? You said there are some good examples. So, Ahmedabad has uh, Ahmedabad has done some uh, okay. good work around that. Uh, I think even Pune, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, there was a development or, uh, on the uh, west side uh, towards Bangalore MRD. Highway. MRD. Yeah, yeah. So, I think there. Uh, I see. The, again, a lot of this is it's caste and unfortunately it's hard to say this, but it's 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 true. Like a lot of this is. It's easier to do when it's upper caste farmers who own big chunks of land, and then your negotiation becomes with a fewer number of people, and they are more aware of their rights and their privileges to have these conversations. It becomes a lot harder to do when you have smaller uh, size of land, because then you'll have more farmers to uh, to get on board, and then there's a lot of playing one against the other, and all of that yeah. that happens. So uh, we cannot say that these models are. Something that can be applied uniformly everywhere. There is going to be some places where you might have to do the uh, the 
just like taking over the land kind of a model, but I don't know. There are lots of places where you can potentially apply this. I would actually well. link what you just said back to uh, how you fell out of love with economics because it's very easy to build a nice mathematical model that says that this is what will happen if you do it this way. Yeah. But the reality of the sociology in India is something that you can't capture in a mathematical model. Yeah, yeah so I think uh, the, the joys of uh, urban planning that that come to you is i think the only profession that is probably worse is geology because <laughs> they say you know they say about geology right nothing changes for a million years <laughs> and in some ways that is urban planning because whatever <laughs> whatever like joy you can get out of this work is, is is you have to have a lot of patience for it because a lot of things are you're you're talking about Something that you will do today will get its benefit or see its impact like uh, 30 or 40 years down the line, sometimes even longer. So yeah, you have to be very patient in this profession. Okay. About four or five different questions that are dying to us that have come from the students, but we'll come, we'll come back to that uh, in just a little while. Maybe a controversial question, maybe uh, a deliberately controversial one, but I really am dying to ask this to a lot of people from within the field of urbanization. Does India actually need more slums? And by that I mean, are there aspects to living in a slum that we underrate? And second, related, what do we as a society not understand about slums? Yeah, we actually, so we don't understand a lot about slums. And a lot of recent uh, studies have shown us that our whole idea of how slums work is, is greatly misleading, right? I think for one is that there's this entire parallel economy that happens in, in a lot of slums that get completely discounted or not counted at all. Forget about even being counted low, but not counted at all in our GDP calculations and in, in our different things that we do. So, I mean, there are many studies that show that Dharavi has a very thriving, I forget the, the rupee value of it, but it's a really thriving economy that is Dharavi with Dharavi, not necessarily Dharavi with the rest of the world. And uh, we, it, it goes completely under the radar. So it doesn't enter GDP calculations, doesn't enter this. We, we have very misconceived notions of what exactly are the dependencies in slums. Now, whether we need more slums or not, I mean, if we define slum as to be the kind of a place with very poor infrastructure and uh, poor urban conditions, and obviously I would say we don't need more slums. But do we need more housing for the poor? Do we need more uh, space for that? Absolutely. And I think slums arise as a consequence of the fact that we have not created the right kind of incentives for the market to provide these spaces. And I'm very careful about the way I've chosen these words. Yes. Uh, many times people will say, okay, the, the solution for this is more government housing. And I do not necessarily think that is true. What I because we see the problems with, which are there with government housing, right? And I think for those of you who would want to see the classic cases, um, trying to resettle Dharavi. Sorry, trying to resettle Dharavi is a classic example. Yeah, exactly. So if you take if you take your car and drive from uh, Pune to Bombay, then you have to pass the Chembur Road. Just before Chembur, this is area I think Govandi and Mankund, if I'm Mankund, yeah. yeah, where they have built these. I saw of these towers, okay, they're, they're like uh, 14, 15 story towers where literally uh, one building is just a car distance away from the next building. So if you stretch your hand out a little bit and the guy from the other building stretches his hand out a little bit, we can actually shake shake hands. And 
so the people firstly who build these structures don't even understand uh, how people are supposed to forget rich or poor but secondly they don't even understand poor people because they don't they uh, have to recognize that poor people will over time they want these uh, facilities to be self sustainable they're not going to be able to sustain the infrastructure around a high rise which is costly because you require the water tanks you require elevators you require all of that thing to be maintained and well kept and poor people are just not going to be able to afford that that is why poor people prefer to live at the level of the street because the infrastructure around that is a lot easier to maintain given the income resources that, that is there in their hands right. the second thing is that we don't understand is that uh, the jobs that are uh, typically employed by low income people they need to have access to the jobs so primarily we choose residents based on the fact that it allows us access to employment and if you put all of these people in another pocket and say okay now fine you figure out about work it's definitely not going to work to work out right so i think that I, uh, is why i'm i'm not in favor of government housing but what i mean is there should be good government schemes to encourage the development of uh, housing so you, schemes such as uh, you're marking a certain amount of land for low income housing as part of your development scheme uh, so you ensure a bit of mixed land use around that you're marking and a certain amount of housing for disadvantaged we have now ways of uh, identifying disadvantaged family groups so you're marking certain amount of properties for for only families that meet that eligibility criteria these are the kind of things that we can do by while still adopting the market principles without sacrificing market principles we can still ensure that we cater for these needs as well okay i have about five uh, questions that i want to ask you that are not really personal per se but about your journey feel free to choose to not answer sure. any one of them once yeah. we have those five questions that we'll move on to some surprisingly and scarily excellent questions from the students yeah so, first of all if you got the chance to do your masters degree at gokhale specifically all over again what would you do differently knowing what you do now hmm <laughs> uh i don't know. so i i think a lot has changed uh, since when i did uh, my masters back then I, as i said uh, it it was a lot more academic there was less avenues for uh, exploring information outside our textbooks and i think i'm glad that that is opening up a lot uh one thing that i understood and this is more by seeing students outside india now that i started working i've been interacting a lot of with uh, younger people who are coming from universities outside india as well i think one thing that i feel that i would have done differently is that i should have questioned more I, and i would strongly encourage your all students to actually question your professors uh, a lot more we in india tend to uh, see that as being rude or being disrespectful if you start asking questions and that is not how people outside uh, india actually look at it they if you don't ask questions they look at you as being okay somebody who lacks confidence or somebody who has not fully understood the problem and and again, again the point that ashish made in the beginning is actually important don't just ask questions for the sake of it or don't ask questions where it's very easy to find the answer with the internet but ask questions that show that you have an appreciation and an understanding for what you uh, uh, for the topic or ask questions that will genuinely clarify your doubt so don't feel afraid about it from that perspective the second thing is also to challenge ideas i think we take a lot of things for very uh, for granted in 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 our education system 
okay, Adam Smith said this, Alfred Marshall said this, and blah, 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 and we are happy with that. But a lot of the education that I've seen from other places is, is about challenging ideas, it's about building your own perception and your own thought around these issues. I think that would be a nice thing. I wish I could have done that differently. Uh, I wish our professors would have let us do those things differently Absolutely. back in the day. I couldn't agree more. In fact, my next question is uh, along these lines. So it's one of those rare questions that I'm actually going to read out because I, it what you just said right now really resonated with me. Is there a better way to learn than arguing with friends? And a related question, what would you recommend as useful tips when getting into an argument with friends? Because I honestly believe the reason I'm asking this question is I've learned a lot about urbanization quite literally by arguing with you. Sometimes heatedly, mm -hmm. sometimes offline, whatever it may be. Yeah. But is there a better way to learn than argument, number one? And number two, what tips would you recommend to students about arguing effectively? <laughs> no, I don't know about the tips because I, I don't, I actually think uh, Ashish is, is very good in, in, I wouldn't say arguing, but uh, in, in putting out a point. Uh, and explaining his point uh, very well. And I feel sometimes I struggle with that. Uh, my basic thing, and this is something that I've learned and I try to do, though I don't always do it successfully, is that very often we try to pose problems that we don't have solutions for a certain, and then it becomes a question of like what you're saying, but and you, you point problem in the other person's argument. And you can break down anyone's argument in that perspective, but do you have a solution for that argument, right? And I think this is there was this line that I saw in this movie. I can't remember which movie, but uh, it, it was a very it's a line that has stayed with me. It's a line that says that uh, you don't have a problem unless you have a solution, right? So nothing is a problem unless you have a solution. So come to me basically when you have some solution to a particular problem, and that is I think an important way to look at argue, look at the world as such is that when you have a different perspective on on an idea it's worth arguing about it otherwise it's just about trying to break down the other person's perspective and it gets you nowhere yeah that's just my take on it yeah how has becoming a father changed your view about urbanization so the reason i ask this question <laughs> is because you know where i stay visited uh, the place i stay at currently quite often and until yeah. my daughter was born i had never once bothered about the fact that there were no footpaths leading up to my apartment yeah. Yeah. But every time I go out with my daughter for a walk, it, it yeah. strikes me. Yeah, I, know. I know what you're saying. So, I mean, okay, let me reveal a little bit more about myself. I mean, in many ways, um, my decision, my wife's decision together to leave India, which is a very hard decision, was actually taken because we now have a family and we saw that India is changing in a, in a good way, but the change is coming slow slowly and a lot of times it's not happening in the in the way that we would have liked to see and uh, we thought whether we would uh, it would be if we are given the opportunity to uh, to allow our children better infrastructure and better facilities uh, should we not grab that opportunity with both hands and uh, it's it's a, obviously a decision that we struggled with it uh, there's so much good for staying in india there's so much good going for india that it was a hard decision to make but i think had we been single and uh, uh, and not having kids, it would have been a lot easier decision to make. But just having children and the fact that we can write outside a house, and we don't live in a very expensive area. We, we live in student housing on, on the university campus. But right outside our house, there is completely free. There are football grounds, hockey grounds, there's tennis courts, a swimming pool, 
there's a public forest there's a forest that is like just a two minute walk from our house so all of these facilities you slowly start valuing uh i won't say more when you have children but it definitely gives you a new appreciation of the importance of these things uh and I, 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 there's this nice line by an urbanist that says that if you make a good city for an eight-year-old child, then you make a good city for everybody because uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's a line that in itself tells you what it should be the goal for your city. Yeah, and I'm yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. My final question before we reach uh, the questions for students. Imagine, and this is of course in a post-COVID world where travel is possible. If a student has a luxury of spending, say, for example, a month traveling mm. using second-class uh, train travel or whatever, so money mm. isn't what I'm asking for or about. Which three or four cities in India do you think the student should definitely visit to get a sense of urbanization, good and bad? Good and bad. Okay. No, I think. Uh... You should definitely visit Chandigarh because it's often quoted as an example of uh, what is good, and uh, in many ways it is got a lot of stuff that is good. But you can also go there to get an appreciation of where I think it could have been better. And I think we spoke about the fact of how it could be a better, more walkable city and a more dynamic city. And again, Chandigarh is also an example of a city that has pushed aside the market principles and being too controlled, which is why a lot of the market forces have not been able to be. Very kind with Chandigarh. So I think that's definitely a city that you would want to visit, and there's a lot of good to see in that city as well. Uh, I think cities of the south. Uh, there are some uh, things that I I really want to go and see the Kochi Metro. I've heard so many good things about it, and uh, not just from the design of the way it operates. I think they've done a lot of good things around the Kochi Metro. I think that's fantastic. The Delhi Metro, I think, is also uh, um, it's 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 really. It's uh, commendable that in uh, the span of what 20 odd years it has gone from nothing to I think now third or fourth largest metro in the world. I'm forgetting what it is, but it's it's really up there. And in terms of infrastructure, also I think it's top notch. Um, that's another city that I really like visiting. Uh, there are good things to see in cities like Ahmedabad, Hyderabad, and uh, Mumbai to some extent as well. Uh, but the thing with urban experiences in India is you have to go and pick the places to see the thing to see because if, if I just say Ahmedabad is good you'll say oh but there's so much of crap that is also there and, and you're right but I think there are certain things that I projects that I really admire uh, I know that this gets a lot of uh, flack by urbanists like me but the Savarmati waterfront project I think that's something nice to at least <laughs> experience uh, of, of course there are things that uh, are not Quite right about that as well, but I, I like the fact that there was at least a focus towards creating uh, public spaces uh, al along the main uh, uh, the main river in the city. Uh, so I think that's something that is uh, nice to visit. But yeah, I think those are what my examples would be. And what are thumb rules when you visit a city for the first time? What yeah. should you keep in mind? So these days with Google Maps, has become relatively easier. But yeah. what are your what is your mental model for exploring a new city? Yeah, walk through the city. I think you cannot get the feel of a city unless you walk through it. And I don't mean I'll walk through every part of it. Obviously, you take a vehicle to get from one perspective, one place to the other. But when you get to a particular point, like if you want to experience Chandni Chowk, you walk through Chandni Chowk. If you want to ex experience basically the whole of Old Delhi, you walk through the Old Delhi. Then you get the real feel of what 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 is what that place is. I think that is something to keep in mind. 
the second thing i think is looking beyond uh, landmarks i think we are a, a little tempted when we go to a new city is is to do the tourist thing right go to the go and just check out the landmarks and and experience that but i think a lot of understanding the character of the city is around the areas that are not necessarily the tourist parts of the of, of the city and you can get that understanding by actually talking to the locals or even googling that and seeing what what is the real character and uh, uh, thing about about that city uh, and yeah i i would uh, encourage like if, if somebody is visiting bandra in mumbai for example the tendency will be to go to bandstand or or go see sharukh khan's house or all of those kind of thing but i would Since I am from Bandra, Mumbai, I would say that the real experience of Bandra is actually walking through the villages of Bandra, through Ranwar and Varoda, and all of these villages, and you get the real feel of what that place used to be be like. And I think that's uh, what I would encourage people to do. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So, you know, personally, thank you so much because I'm done with my question. But if you have not strained your vocal cords enough, you can take some of the questions from the students. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let me see. Oh, you want to yeah. do that? Correct. Okay. I'll select a list. If possible, we'll go through all of them. But if not, then okay. I'll pick the ones yeah. that I find interesting. And this is me being selfish. So Sahil has a question, but don't answer it uh, given your current circumstances uh, in Vancouver. Yeah. But what does a typical day for an urban planning consultant look like? Okay. So it's slow. I mean, that, I I told you right. It's like we compete with geologists in terms of fun. Uh, things move extremely slowly, and it moves even slower in India. It can be extremely frustrating. uh doing this kind of work uh, uh so if if any of you are planning to get into that i i want to give you fair warning right it's 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 a slow field and there's a lot of politics and dirty politics around decision making that you have to learn to live with uh like you might have the best ideas or somebody may have the best ideas but they may not necessarily fly because they're not politically uh the right ways to go about things so that's something that you have to keep in mind uh my day to day work I, uh and i know it's it's cliche to say this but it's very true as a urban planner no two days are alike every day we're doing something different uh a lot of our work is analytical but a lot of our work is actually people engagement and and what would you call stakeholder buy in okay so and especially as you get more senior in that field you spend less amount of time over technical drawings and technical design but you spend more amount of time actually trying to uh, sell your ideas and get people on board and get people uh, together so as i sort of started advancing in my career in urban planning in india uh, i almost like initially i would spend a lot of time on autocad and excel because i would be doing the analytical and the fun design modeling work and all of that myself but uh, sometime recently i i looked back and i realized that my autocad license had on my laptop had expired and i didn't even know that because i had not even opened it for like 2 years because now the the younger people are actually the ones who do that and my work is more about just presenting ideas and presenting thoughts so i think that's something that uh is there with, that goes with the territory and you have to recognize that when getting into a career in urban planning yeah. It lasted about ninety minutes without bringing up COVID, which has got to be some statement. Yeah. Sort of COVID, what is that? That is something new. It had to come up sooner or later. So, Vedan has a question about how challenging it is going to be to get people to feel safe using public transport post post COVID. Uh, 
yeah. Okay, so I, I I don't want to be crude, but I'm telling you, people in my profession right now are literally shitting bricks about this because everything <laughs> about uh, COVID, uh, the the principles, uh, not principles, whatever the the recommendations to keep COVID at bay are the ones that go against what we've been saying for the longest time. So we we talk about the importance of crowding and high density and transit. Uh, like having getting more people on transit and all of that, and that's all bad for COVID, right? And I mean, bad, bad in the sense that it helps spread COVID. So we are just hoping that this is a bubble that the world will get over soon, and that COVID uh, is not here to stay in the long term. And we don't have too many uh, precedents in terms of data points. The only data point for this was a hundred years back with the Spanish flu, right? But uh, even going by that data point, it uh, it lasted, I think, three years. A lot of people died, and it was a terrible uh, situation. But uh, once humanity went through that cycle, uh, it sort of corrected itself, and that no more became an issue. So right now, we feel that it's too early to react long term to change the way we're thinking about the importance of things around high density neighborhoods and uh, and uh, pr promoting public transit. We may be wrong, and we may have to. Uh, and COVID might actually be the new normal, as people say, and we might have to rethink the way things are planned. But for now, uh, my personal feeling is to just wait it out. I know three years is a long time to wait it out, but I don't necessarily see people changing the way they promote uh, things around transit, density, and all of that. Uh, there are the, the stopgap arrangements around mask wearing and all of that, which is so right now it's it's mandatory. I, I'm sure it is a case in uh, India as well, but it's mandatory on all transit vehicles. You have to wear a mask. But yeah, I hope that long term we don't have to do that. Yeah. Fair enough. So uh, another question by Anshi was in a sense already answered by you. So I'll keep skipping backwards and forwards. Yeah. The list of questions. Sure. The next question that I'm going to ask uh, is from Varada, and this is probably going to raise your blood pressure. But your thoughts on flyovers? Everywhere yeah. yeah, and I think this is a point that even Ashish and I touched on our podcast. Is that, yeah. uh, I mean, so I've been uh, working with WRI, that actually gave me the luxury of visiting a lot of cities across the world. And I'm telling you, outside South Asia, you almost don't see flyovers anywhere uh, in the world, and definitely not in the Western world, uh, in in North America or Europe or Canada. Uh, now. I, I want to make sure that I distinguish between a flyover and a f uh, elevated freeway. Okay, now so the closest example of an elevated freeway is the one that they built in Mumbai along the eastern, the eastern freeway. Basically, that uh, connects I think uh, 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 Badala uh, all the way down to South, South Bombay. Yeah. Uh, so I'm distinguishing those because those are long elevated roads versus the flyover. Flyover is just meant to climb one intersection and cross over. Now those work. Flyover that just cross one intersection and cross over. I've almost not seen them anywhere in uh, North America or Europe. Why? Is because one is they extremely ugly, right? And they completely destroy the urban fabric of your city. The second thing is they don't really solve any problem because all you're doing is you're making life easier that one intersection by pushing the problem down to the next intersection. So what are you effectively going to get is a, a kind of a up and down and up and down of traffic till you eventually come to a point where they'll, they'll be stuck in uh, jam. And you can see that in Mumbai on the Western Express Highway where you have flyover after flyover, you finally get a jam at the point where there is no flyover, right? Because at some point you can't, you have to stop doing the flyover, right? Because there is no space available. 
the other problem that i have with flyovers is very often it solves the wrong kind of problem because you create a new problem under the flyover and this you if if you ever and again i'm sorry to use mumbai again as an example because it's most familiar to me but there is this tulsi pipe road around where the phoenix mall is right and they have built this flyover right outside that but the flyover is meant to cross that particular area where the mills are but most of the traffic is is going to the mills so they all have to go under the flyover so as a and what you would have left under the flyover now is just one lane and right. so as as a result you have a much higher build up of traffic under the flyover than is there above the flyover and that actually is is bad right because had you not had the flyover you would have been had a much wider road width to better manage the traffic move, movement and circulation along that road so i strongly i mean the, i think that the worst thing that could have happened to mumbai was those uh five years when uh, nitin gadkari was the transport minister of maharashtra and went berserk with these flyovers all over mumbai and unfortunately that's a paradigm that a lot of cities in india seem to take as the it's kind of the symbol of development uh, of flyover but it's the worst thing that can potentially happen and i don't so there are flyovers that cross railway tracks and then obviously they are they are necessary because that's the only way you get across so they are more like bridges but flyovers that are just crossing an intersection more often than not they are a terrible idea and gandhar has an interesting question and the reason it's interesting is because one of the most fascinating things i read uh, this year when i say this year i mean in 2020 mm-hmm. was houseman's attempt to restructure the not just the building but also the look and feel of paris apparently did not go down well when he was restructuring it mm-hmm. which is to me interesting because the paris that i know and love today apparently was very different from about say 120 years ago and people mm-hmm. back then didn't want that look of paris to emerge yeah this uh, question that gandhar has is is it possible to do something like that for pune while maintaining its cultural integrity so this is a I mean, it's a very, very good question, and I think uh, I, a bit of backstory. I don't know if many of you know this that the Eiffel Tower in Paris was eventually uh, was initially planned to be uh, up for I think only a year or so because they were doing some World Expo, and then it was supposed to be brought down. Right. And when they had plans for the Eiffel Tower, it was extremely criticized at that point of time. All the opposition, this is a horrid thing. It doesn't fit in. with paris but now can you imagine paris without the eiffel tower it's it's like hard to uh, think so right so sometimes uh, we don't uh, and all of us at the end of the day we human right we don't necessarily have the foresight to think of what can become iconic and what uh, what can actually change a character in a good way and what can be something that is terrible right? and i think there are some examples of terrible stuff that that should be brought down as well but uh, having said that i think we have to take each thing uh, on a case by case basis and if you do this in the right way it's okay for uh, cities to slowly uh, recognize each era that they are they are passing through right so just because uh, pune was is an old city doesn't mean that it should not get new building and have a new character but at the same time certain building and certain uh, iconic structures from the past should be maintained and maintained like they were back then but new buildings that come up can can reflect the character and the age and the technology that we are currently in and then you get these different layers of uh, development which which actually look nice sometimes they look good together sometimes they clash and conflict with each other but by and large i think uh, there is the whole notion around 
cultural integrity is is very touchy because it's all about balance there are places when you need to be very uh, sanctimonious about it and say no this we should fight this change and fight it but in certain places especially around the expansions of a city i think it's it's okay to embrace what is new uh, because some day they'll be old and your grandchildren will be fighting to keep it the way it it was yeah ananya has a question about whether a city like pune really needs a metro couldn't we just do what we have or at least improve what we have before building the metro yeah this is a great question and i'll answer it in two ways yes pune needs a metro but the second part of what you said is does it need to do a lot of things before it gets to a metro absolutely yes and uh, th- that is unfortunately the story about uh, metro in india is we metro for us has now become this thing that we see oh wow look at it it's, it's something so wonderful let's invest in a metro and metros are extremely expensive so a lot of cities that can be doing a lot more with buses don't end up doing that because they invested all their resources in metro now why is it pune would probably need a metro because pune is a 5 million plus city and i think at, at that scale it it, it probably needs a, a high density corridor so but something like a lucknow now lucknow has a metro or jaipur has a metro there all these other smaller cities are planning metros when they could have used the same amount of money that they have invested on a metro corridor and instead of doing just one corridor they could have had 10 high uh, capacity uh, transit cor- bus transit corridor and i don't mean brt and and, I, and again I, i i'm telling the, the the thing about brt is it's it's really uh, been terribly applied in a lot of indian cities that it's given brt such a bad name that i think it's better not do brt in india uh, just because uh, now any but he puts up a guardrail and has a bus running through it and they call it a brt and that is not what a brt at the end of the day is a is a technology driven system with in physical infrastructure just being one component of it we in india have done physical infrastructure like in pune without the technology component and then it fails it just becomes something that uh, yeah i mean it marginally makes bus travel better but it at a big cost that is just not worth it Two last questions. One, Madhura asks, "What are your thoughts on Oroville?" Yeah, I mean, I don't have a, a negative thought about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's again about scale. I mean, it, 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 it's a nice way to live if you're going to be living at that scale. But at the end of the day, I think this all comes down to choices. You, you need to have cities like Mumbai. You need to have uh, settlements like Oroville. You need uh, things at different scale. And at the end of the day. it's all, it's all about that I, i guess i mean i don't have any thought beyond that i do, i've not heard anything negative about it it's not a place that i would like to live in personally but yeah i think it's uh, and the last question for this particular talk at least uh, well two and they just asked one but we'll stop with akesh's mm-hmm. question so anshi's question is about uh, smart cities and especially those that are not in touch with the original city her example is nayaraipur and raipur putra yeah Hajar examples from all over the world. We've spoken about this in the podcast, but if you wouldn't mind mm. speaking about it briefly. Okay. Uh, so again, s- smart city like BRT. So ten uh, t- years back, BRT was the buzzword for all Indian planners, and there would there would be conferences after conference on BRT and BRT. That has slowly moved into so in between there was bike sharing because China was investing a lot in bike sharing and. that sort of flavor of the month sort of went very quickly and now it's smart city and this is again it's a buzzword driven with nobody having any 
common definition of what constitutes a smart city the government of india runs a smart city program which i'm sorry to say this is just a rewording of the jnnurm scheme without the jawaharlal nehru part of the name because of obvious reason they want to drop that because at the end of the day what it is basically it's central money given to uh, cities to do something better with uh, uh, for the people uh, and they with the flavor of an outside element of technology applied to it but essentially what is a smart city or what is a smart anything it's basically making intelligent decisions with the resources that you have doesn't necessarily need to be a technology driven city i don't know because some way that uh, when the term smart city was introduced that was how it was defined but that's not the way the government of india is using the smart city uh, concept uh, talking about naya raipur and raipur city and i think the larger question is did uh, chatisgarh need a, a naya raipur could they have not just made a better capital around the raipur city uh, why, what was the need to create that additional uh, thing and it comes down to real estate land grabbing this whole political concept that we need these greenfield cities the same thing is what uh, andhra pradesh tried with uh, amravati and that has uh, fallen through uh, so thing is i'm not in favor of it is all of this see all of them have their parent their origin in chandigarh so whether it's gandhinagar bhubneshwar uh, uh, nayar raipur all of them not only they follow the urban form of chandigarh but it's also the same vision that a capital needs to be separate from the masses and raipur is too dirty and old a city so we need to create a naya raipur and a new uh, with on a clean slate i don't necessarily think that's the the right way to go yes i do support the need to create new towns and new settlement but i feel that they need to be spurred organically around an existing entity and not just something blank uh, sitting on a, a clean slate and that's why raipur today is is uh, sorry naya raipur is dead uh, there there are many problems with its urban form uh, especially if i'm not mistaken they have right of ways of 100 meters so basically you have to be the same bold to cross that street okay <laughs> the road width of 100 meters uh, in, in their central avenue leading up to the capital complex so i don't know i don't think it's uh, it it was a well thought out or a well planned city which is why it's probably failing and will continue to fail all right and last question for the day adhya asks if mumbai is overdoing the metros um i don't think so. i think mumbai joined the metro party a little late now and uh, i i i i mean if i had to be a little picky i would criticize some of the choice of corridors because uh they are running very close or in very so parallel to the existing suburban railway system uh so uh, i would say in that sense yeah i uh, would agree with you but uh, as far as the east west connectors i'm i'm a big supporter of having them because the suburban railway systems do not have the east west uh, connectors so i think it's good that mumbai is developing them uh so yeah i i don't know i wouldn't say that mumbai is really overdoing the metro i think uh it started late uh and yeah it's just trying to play catch up in a way it's good that they're doing all of them uh, simultaneously let, let the city go through a little pain for a few years and hopefully uh will get this system uh, good at, at one time but one thing i think that we had, uh, since we brought up the thing about metros i think again here we see it as only the transit infrastructure right but what happens around the infrastructure that is the access to these stations and the development around these stations 
I think that's a big part that we completely lost with the uh, the first metro corridor, right? So, if you have to go to any of these stations uh, on the Mumbai metro, they have very they have very poor access. You come down on from a wonderful world class metro station, and you come down on the street level, and it's complete chaos. You don't even have enough width on the sidewalk to accommodate the capacity of the people coming out of the metro station. Or leave alone facilities for transfer to a rickshaw or a taxi or a bus or whatever have you so that is something that i think we need to do well so if your question is are we doing metros too fast and not catering to the surrounding infrastructure that comes with a metro corridor absolutely agree with you we need to take these things simultaneously and if we can't handle it simultaneously then we should probably be stretching out the metro implementation with uh, this yeah awesome so fantastic yeah good you know thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It was wonderful. Yeah. And and hope I could answer all your questions. I was really fascinated uh, and impressed by the knowledge of a lot of these students. And actually, it put me to shame with some of the concepts that even I did not know about. So I'm a little embarrassed, but I'm also happy to learn about them. I'm going to go back now and look for YouTube videos for some of these th concepts that you have talked about. Awesome. And yeah, happy to interact with all of you.